you have your Bible with you, open them to the book of Matthew. So, yeah, that was pretty mean. Um, I, uh, I did switch that around on you. Um, there, W.C. Fields once said that there are two kinds of people in the world those who divide the world into two kinds of people and those who don't. Um, so there are two kinds of people in the world, those who read their bulletin and those who don't. And uh, some of you read your bulletin. We are, we are going to be taking a break for two weeks from the book of Colossians. We're going to be in Matthew this morning precisely because it is Christmas season and there's nothing wrong with, with stepping aside to acknowledge the season that we are in. And because we are in Christmas season, we're going to be coming back to the gospel of Matthew to look at the narrative that surrounds the birth of our Savior. And today we're going to be looking at the first 17 verses of the gospel of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to the book of Matthew, the first book in our New Testament. Introductions into books and movies are just terribly important. And sometimes for movies, it is simply there to give you information. So we have the title credits. They tell you what the name of the movie is, if you didn't know. They tell you who produced the movie, who directed the movie, the uh, companies that, that funded the movies. All those things are given to us. But if you're paying attention, usually those opening credits do a lot more than just that. They are setting the theme of the movie. You immediately know, typically, by the time the opening credits are finished, what kind of movie you're watching. Is it a drama? Is it a comedy? Where is it set? Is it set in Europe? Is it America? Is it in a city or is it in a rural place? Is it present day? Is it in the future? Is it long ago in the past? All of these things are set up by us and for us by the introduction to the movie. Books do the exact same thing. All the famous introduction to books that you've ever had typically are there simply to concisely and quickly set all of these things in place for you. Good introductions do that. The narratives that we have of Jesus' life in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do the same thing. The themes that you find in the introduction to these books are the themes that are writ large throughout the books. So if you turn to Luke, you'll find that Luke's introduction is filled with historical accuracy. And then it turns into drama as he talks about the birth of John the Baptist. Not just Jesus, but going back to John the Baptist and, and the wondrous way in which God worked in keeping Elizabeth from getting pregnant until the time was near. Not only that, but the elongated scene of Jesus coming to Mary and being um, overshadowing by the Holy Spirit in her lends itself to drama. It is a sense that there is something important and and vitally um, important in the big scheme of the world here happening in Luke. If you turn to the Gospel of John, the tenor totally changes. John doesn't speak of great drama at the beginning, but it's clearly very theological and philosophical. It's filled with contrasts. It's, it's filled with before the world began. It's metaphysical, and it's, it's clearly a book that dwells very deeply on, on one or two thoughts. It's clearly a, a gospel that's going to be filled with signs and wonders. It's going to be a gospel that is filled with these contrasts of light and dark. That's precisely what we get. In Mark, you have absolutely no birth narrative. Whereas John goes back to before the beginning of the world and Luke goes back to the birth narrative, Mark says, nuts to that altogether, we're just going to jump right into the action. And he begins to talk about John preparing the way and Jesus being baptized and you're off immediately. Mark is just completely filled with action sequences, one after another after another. Whereas John is going to get up and talk like an instructor before a philosophy class, Mark is an action movie and bombs are dropping everywhere. So what does it say about Matthew? That when we come to Matthew, the first thing we read is a genealogy. 
This is, well, not the most action-filled part of Matthew's gospel. These are the kinds of things that when you are reading through, especially the Old Testament, there are chapters and chapters of these, and they are at times very difficult for us to get through. We don't see what the importance of them is. We, we talk that all scripture is inspired by God, but then we come to a genealogy and we kind of say some are maybe more inspired than others, right? Like it's true that we can always build character out of these things, but sometimes we don't know how. Today we are going to read the genealogy of Jesus Christ from the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to find that this does adequately introduce us to the book of Matthew, but it does it in a brilliant way. It doesn't do it by hitting you over the head with a shovel. It doesn't do it by making it perfectly obvious, everything that you need to know, but Matthew is subtle, and he is careful, and he is concise, and it is a beautiful introduction to his gospel all the same, and specifically, not just an introduction to his gospel, but because his gospel is about Jesus Christ, it is his introduction into who Christ is. So let us read from the gospel of Matthew, beginning in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation of Bab- to Babylon to the Christ, fourteen generations. This is the word of our God. So what is Matthew doing? Why begin a gospel like this? Why introduce us to Jesus like this? The first and most obvious reason is, number one, he is the son of Abraham and David. 
The book of Matthew is taken up with many themes, but the overriding theme in the gospel of Matthew is not just that Jesus is a savior, but that Jesus is the Christ and that the Christ was indeed the king. The easiest way to attack the idea that Jesus was the king was to point out very clearly that he did not come from the line of David. And so many people would say that what Matthew is doing here is arguing against those who would say that Jesus can't be the king because he didn't come from David's line. And so clearly what he is doing in part is simply saying, yeah, 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 he actually did come from David's line. And we can trace the genealogy back to prove that he came from David's line. This can be seen in a couple of ways. Not only can you follow the words that are written here, but seeing that David is clearly centerpiece in this particular section of scripture is very easy. You look at the beginning and you look at the end. And usually what comes at the beginning and what comes at the end, if they are the same, it is important. You'll notice that it starts in chapter 1, verse 1, by saying that Jesus Christ is the son of David. And at the end, he says this, so all of the generations from Abraham to David were 14, and from David to the deportation, 14. David is the marker. As a matter of fact, even Matthew's use of 14 here although there's a lot of speculation on it, it is likely due to the fact that if you spell out David's name in Hebrew, those letters symbolize the number 14. And so David is wrote through here. From beginning to the end, David is the most important bit of his genealogy. Jesus Christ is a descendant of David, and therefore, Matthew would say, he is the king. Of course, if you were going to call him a son of David, you also will call him a son of Abraham. He is, of course, a Jew. It was important that Jesus was not just known as a king, but he was specifically the king, thus from David, of the Jews, thus from Abraham. (coughs) It is easy to see this as you go throughout the book of Matthew, that time after time after time, Jesus is being compared to David in numerous and in different ways. In Matthew 12, verses 1 through 8, when his disciples are seen picking off the grains of, of wheat, the Pharisees come to him and say, hey, you can't do that on the Sabbath. And he immediately says, don't you know what David did? Later on in chapter 22, verses 41 to 46, we read these words. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word Not from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Now the whole point of Matthew recording that is not so much to elicit responses, but to show that Jesus made it so that it was impossible to come back again him and and really disclaim his authority. They didn't understand scripture. The point was simple. If he was David's son, David was greater than him. Sons do not become greater than their fathers. So if the Christ was a son of David, why does David call him Lord? Now, given the fact that Jesus clearly thought he was the Savior, given the fact that Jesus clearly thought he was the Christ, he is clearly calling himself better than David here. Continually, 
throughout Matthew's gospel, the appeal to the Davidic line of kingship is writ large. The most important part of Matthew's gospel in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in Matthew 27 upholds this very idea. Notice what happens here in the irony of what the soldiers are doing to Jesus and the irony of how Matthew portrays it as irony. It's irony upon irony upon irony. In Matthew 27, verse 27, we read this. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail! King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And down in verse 37 we read, And over his head they put a charge against him which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. It was meant to be a mock, right? So they, they put that sign over his head because he was being crucified. It's a way of Roman soldiers to say, this is as good of a king as you can have. Look at what we Romans have done to him. And in Matthew's gospel, that is the very thing that makes him the king. See, they thought that they were mocking him. Matthew thinks that they're alluding to his true kingship, and there's irony everywhere. But the point is that Matthew was portraying him, the Jews were portraying him. The whole question of the entirety of Matthew is whether he is king of the Jews. So when he says he is the son of David, and he traces his lineage back to him, he is making a point fervently that this is indeed the king of the Jews. It is also important that he is the son of Abraham of every book in the New Testament, save perhaps, perhaps the book of James. This is by far the most Jewish book. As a matter of fact, if you go to certain scholars, and they're not terribly reliable scholars for reasons I'm about to tell you, but they have a point. If you go to certain scholars, they will read Paul, and they will read Matthew, and they will say there's no way these two are on the same side. Matthew is so thoroughly Jewish. He has nothing to say about the law that isn't unequivocally good. He gives no indication that the law comes to an end. He gives no indication that you are to do anything but follow the law. Yeah, you've got to do more than that. But he gives no indication that the law comes to an end. As a matter of fact, they would go so far as to say that the Great Commission was actually to make the nations into Jews. Now, we don't believe that. But nevertheless, there's a reason why it reads like that. Because Matthew is thoroughly Jewish. Because this Jesus was not just the son of David and therefore a king, but he was thoroughly throughout his life a son of Abraham and therefore a Jew. These are indeed themes through the book of Matthew. But is that all we're supposed to get from this? It's just that he was, he was king, that he was somehow related to David and therefore eligible to be king, and he was related to Abraham and therefore able to be a son of Abraham. And if that is the case, why not just say that he was indeed? Because this doesn't do us a lot of good. Parts of this do. We can go back to Second Chronicles, and you can actually follow the lineages here. Now, Matthew is clearly doing things that he wants to with it. Let's be very honest with it. But we can follow it. But after the deportation... Those names up and disappear. It's not as though that third stanza, that third grouping of 14 is just difficult to trace. We literally can't trace it. We have no idea where these names come from. 
we have a good guess that Matthew had access to this before Jerusalem burned in AD 70 and then burned again a couple decades later. But nevertheless, we don't have access to it now. So in that sense, it doesn't do us any good. We can't appeal to the book of Matthew saying he was actually connected back to the Christ. Maybe Matthew could do that. But is that all we're supposed to get out of it? I don't think so. Secondly, we know this from the genealogy. Jesus might have been the son of Abraham and David, but he was also the son of outcasts. He was also the son of outcasts. You will notice, especially in that first stanza, that first 14 names, that it's not just men who are listed, right? Now, according to genealogies, the only thing that matters is that your dad is who you said he was, and you track back lineage through the fathers, which is why we have father after father after father after father. But every once in a while, Matthew stops and he pops in the name of a woman. There's no reason that he has to do that. And there's every indication then when there's no reason to mention something and you do that he's trying to tell you something about it. So immediately we get this idea in verse 3. And Judah, father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Why mention her? What role does she have to play in this? There's a couple of things going on here, I think. First, what is it that makes David and Abraham great? What is it that, that actually makes them great? This is a terribly important question. It doesn't seem like it necessarily, but it's really important. What is it that makes David great? David is great, not just because he was made king, but even according to Matthew's gospel, David was great not because, not because he was king, and even flipping it around, Jesus was great not because he was the son of David, but David was great because he was the father of Jesus. See, greatness in Matthew's gospel is always directly related to Christ. This is why in Matthew 11, he can uphold John the Baptist as the greatest who has ever been born from a woman. How can he say that? Given that David was born from a woman, certainly David is more important. Moses is more important. Abraham is more important than John the Baptist. But Jesus says, no, he's not more important. And then he turns around and says, everyone who comes after him, who is born into the kingdom of God, even the least in the kingdom of God, is more important than any of them. Every single person in here who is born in the kingdom of God, by the very affirmation of Jesus Christ, says, you are more important than David. Why is that? It's because you picture Christ you can speak of Christ. You can reference Christ. You can evangelize people and show people Christ more clearly than David ever could. The only thing that makes David great is that he is linked directly to Christ. The only thing that makes Abraham great is that he eventually fathers people who fathers people who fathers people who marries someone who gives birth to Christ. And so when you see these outcasts, you realize what Matthew is doing subtly, subtly, very subtly, but you see what he's doing. Women were not on equal standing with men. And a lot of people, man, they, they will come to Scripture, which was written in a time, you know, given 2,000 years before where we are now, and they will lament the fact that this book isn't more egalitarian, it's not more friendly to women than it is, or friendly to people of other 
I don't know, social standings than it is. And they will lament this fact as though it was written like 20 years ago. What Matthew is doing might not be the full poster board for what we want for inclusivity. But man, Matthew is going out of his way to say that women are important in God's plan. He doesn't have to do this. These women are not important in his overall plan. To link Jesus back to Abraham and Christ, or excuse me, to link Jesus back to Abraham and David, you do not need to list these women. And the fact that he goes out of his way to do so is saying exactly what I said last week about Sarah. These women are terribly important in the plan of God. More than being just important in the plan of God, these women are outcasts, not just because they are women, but because they are, by and large, Gentile women. They are non-Jewish. Tamar was a Canaanite. Rahab famously lived in Jericho before the Israelites came and ran it through. Ruth, who's mentioned as the grandfather or the grandmother of David, was a Moabite. So again, what you get is this picture that Matthew is not only saying that the kingdom and the idea of Jesus being king is writ large through my gospel, but there's also this this sort of subtle minor thread that women, and especially Gentile women, play an incredibly important part. Outcast women play an incredibly important part in the gospel. You see this in something like Matthew 15, where Luke calls someone a Syrophoenician woman. The same detailed account, Luke says that she's a Syrophoenician woman, which gives her geography, okay? It's like saying someone's from Ohio, okay? They're outside of the realm of goodness, and they're somewhere else, okay? But Luke mentions her based on her geography, but what does Matthew call the same woman? Matthew calls her a Canaanite. That is not geography-related. That is ethnicity-related, He does that specifically to call to the fact that she is not of the people of God. And she pleads with Jesus to give her scraps. He says, listen, I cannot give good things to those dogs when the children sit at the table of God. She says, the dogs still eat scraps. He says, good. Your faith has healed your son. Go. Now it's a minor thing. It's a minor thing, but the fact that Jesus is interacting at all in such a Jewish book with people who are not Jewish is a major influence. And then what do you get as you go further along in the gospel? What does Matthew begin to do? He begins to have Jesus talk in such a way that the kingdom will be taken away from the Jews and handed over to the Gentiles. So parable after parable after parable comes down. God has sent messengers to a vineyard. Those messengers have been beaten up and thrown out and eventually he sends his son and they say, if we can kill the son, then we can have the vineyard all to ourselves. And Jesus says, what do you think the master is going to do to the owners of that vineyard? What do you think he's going to do when he shows up and he finds out that they've killed his son? He's going to rip the vineyard out from them. He's going to give it to others and he is going to destroy all of you. This is not soft language about handing the kingdom of God over to those who are outside. Time and time again, toward the end of his ministry, Jesus continues to talk like this. In Matthew 21, we read these words. Hear another parable. 
There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit, and the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. He again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him, they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? Those in vicinity said, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let the vineyard out to other tenants who will give them the fruits of their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now, importantly, is the response to that. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Time and time again, Jesus gives these parables and he says, the vineyard will be taken from you. The vineyard in Isaiah 5 is clearly Israel. It is clearly God's people. And he says, I'm, gonna, I'm going to take it away from you and I'm going to give it to others. This is not soft language. But again, this doesn't come out of nowhere. Already in the, in the very plan of God built throughout time, God has used Gentiles. The hint is already built into the genealogy that Gentiles are not excluded from the promises of God, but they've been built into it. Not only built into the lineage of the very Christ who will save them from their sins, but it's been built into the plan of God since before the foundation of time. He is indeed the son of outcasts who has come to save outcasts. Thirdly, he is the son of sinners. When we find odd things then, we ought to take a second to stop and think through how they're odd and why they're odd, given the fact that he has already mentioned Tamar, and given the fact that he's already mentioned Boaz, or excuse me, Rahab, and given the fact that he's already mentioned Ruth. We should find it odd then, when talking about Solomon's mom, he doesn't call her Bathsheba. He doesn't say David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, which we would expect, and we wouldn't find that much out of place because he's already used mom's names. But instead here, he foregoes using the mom's name and says she's what? The wife of Uriah. Now you can read that and say, well, she's called the wife of Uriah to highlight the fact that while Bathsheba was most likely Jewish or most likely Israelite, Uriah wasn't, and therefore she could kind of be considered foreign, which some scholars do. I think that's all wash. Rather, the point is that she wasn't David's wife. The point is that she was someone else's wife. That Solomon, in the line of David that leads to Christ, was fathered not just out of wedlock, but in adultery. It is to bring to mind that Uriah was the one who was faithful to David, not David to Uriah. That David used Uriah's faithfulness to kill him. David is the centerpiece of this whole thing to highlight the sin of David's life and to highlight 
nothing else, nothing else about David other than he fathered Solomon in sin highlights the fact that this is a genealogy that's filled with sinful people. Even the mentioning of Tamar, go back to Genesis 38 and read the wretched story of how Judah treats Tamar. Judah's son marries her. He dies because he's wicked before the Lord. And so Onan, his second son, is given to her in order that he might father children through her. But instead of doing his duty, he takes what is good in that situation and he refuses to father children by her until God takes him away. And then Judah says, well, I'm not going to give her another son because God's just killing every single one of them. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, well, you can have my youngest son, but not until he gets older, until he's marriageable age. Tamar quietly waits until even that doesn't come to fruition. Because he's cheating her, she cheats him. She pretends to be a prostitute, conceives a child by Judah, which is incestuous, according to Scripture. In the end, Tamar is held up as being righteous and Judah faithless. Yet these people are found throughout this Genealogy. It doesn't take long to go through the kings to find out that David was probably the best king, even with the adultery and murder of one of his chief men. Down and down you go, and they get worse and worse as you go. It's a list that is filled with sinful, sinful people. And yet, what do we know? Christ is sinless. God was always one who had to use crooked sticks to make straight lines. It's no different today. He is the son of sinners. And lastly, he is the son of providence. You can read through this and you can think that these are coincidences that Matthew likes to highlight. And clearly, and I will again be very clear with you, Matthew is tweaking his genealogy to fit his purposes. Okay? So you will find if you went back into 2 Chronicles and you trekked these names, you would find names that are flat out missing because Matthew wants them to be missing. It's perfectly okay. If you get upset about it, you can come and talk to me later and I will smooth it out with you. Matthew is clearly using this to prove a point. Okay? However, it is also clear that in Matthew's conception of that point he's trying to prove, that he is trying to show that God's hand is in all of this. As these little things that Jesus came from sinful people to save sinful people, that, that Jesus came from outcasts to save those who were outcasts, that Jesus came from Abraham and David to save not only David who was a Jew, but Abraham who was a Gentile, that he came to save all of them. These hits are then rifled through out Matthew's gospel. After all, what did we just read in chapter 2? He litters these events through chapter 1. And then when we come to chapter 2, what do we read? We read, after Jesus was born, in the days of Judea, the days of Herod the king. There was a king in Jerusalem, but he was not the real king. And who comes to see him? Wise men from the east, magicians from the east, foreigners from the east, arrive in Jerusalem to say, where is this child who is the king of the Jews? 
they go up to the king and ask him, where is the child who's king of the Jews? And you know what isn't going on? They're not, he doesn't look around and say, I know, we're trying to figure it out too. I got my best men working on it. He says, uh, is it, uh, what? King of the, he says, oh, well, I don't know, my son, probably around here somewhere. He has no idea what's going on. He has to assemble scribes to figure out what these foreign people have already known. The point is those who are outside, those who are outcasts, those who shouldn't know have already known. And it is those inside who should know better who don't. Matthew is already showing that this is not just something that has happened, but this is all under God's providence. All of of these names, they're all placed on earth to be part of a lineage that would eventually give us Jesus Christ. God has organized and structured the whole bit. Everything is by his plan. History has unfolded according to God's decree to bring us Jesus Christ. And by no other means has history unfolded. It is the culmination of all of history. There is no genealogy after this. It stops with Jesus because he is it. It is is the unfolding of history. Everything in history has happened because of this. There's no wonder that in chapter 2, Matthew will begin to continue his refrain, it is written to be fulfilled in scriptures. Again, it was fulfilled, so scripture was fulfilled. Every incident that happens, scripture is fulfilled. Well, of course it is. Of course scripture is fulfilled because the entirety of history was leading up to the birth of Christ. God has so organized and providentially rearranged the world to give us Christ. This isn't plan B. It's not plan C. It's not something that happened in the dark of night. It wasn't something that God hatched in 89 B.C., thought, yeah, in 90 years, I could really send him. That might work out. I'll have to work out the details, but we'll see what we can do. From the very beginning and the giving of Abraham to the promise that God would bless him and make everyone and bless all of the nations through him, those whom you bless or those who bless you, I will bless, and those who dishonor you, I will curse. From that very moment, even before then, God had always planned to bring Christ. He is the fulfillment of all of history and the center of it as well. He is the son of providence. These events are woven into Matthew's gospel because they are woven into Jesus. This is who Jesus was. Jesus was the offspring of Abraham and David. Yes, yes, he was. But he was also the offspring of outcasts and he was also the offspring of sinners and he was also given in providence by God so the angels would show up and declare the things that would be from the things that are. So this week, as we prepare, we do Advent to prepare ourselves for Christmas. We are now specifically taking a break from Colossians to prepare ourselves for Christmas. What do we do with this information as we prepare to come together on Christmas Day. Which, by the way, we will do. Our God has made himself into human flesh to gather us unto him. On the day that we celebrate that, it would be really fitting if we gathered together to worship him. And so we will do that. But what are we to do then from this? What, is, what, what are we to do to prepare ourselves for that? Well, there's two things that I would like you to think through. First, given this genealogy, it is quite clear that God does not need perfect people to achieve perfect ends. 
Let me tell you, it is not humble to sit back and say, I am simply a lowly person who cannot do much. I, I am not holy enough. I am not smart enough. I am not capable enough. I, I, I don't really have any, any usefulness in the world. I, listen, it's good enough for me just to, to kind of do my thing in private and to be quiet and go about my life. And there's part of that that's definitely true. Living a quiet Christian life is not a bad thing, but I'm telling you right now, if you think that that is all that God has called for you to do, friend, that ain't humble. That's faithless. There are people on here who are much less equipped than you are to do almost anything. And yet God uses them. To assume that he cannot use you is not humble. It lacks faith in God. Faith that God wants to be foremost in your mind when you read through this list. Secondly, think through the vast importance of this child and what is happening. The entire history of the Jews is falling on him. And realize when we say that, we don't mean that this is one history amongst many histories, which it is. The history of the Jews is one story in the world, and there is certainly the history of the Chinese people and, and African tribes and Northern European tribes at the same time, and the Native Americans as they made their way over into both North America and South America, and, and even Indian people, and the greater Asian people. All of those things are true, and all those stories are going on, but the Jews didn't think of themselves as just a people. They clearly conceived of themselves as being called by the one true and living God. The one God of all the world called them. And so therefore, their history is the history. And for all of their history to be focused on this child means that all of history is focused on this child. He is the beginning and the end. He is the center on which all history reflects. It all bounces off of him. Everything that happened before happened to bring us Jesus. Everything that happens after is in a reflection of him and the reception of what he has done. Everything is done to the glory of Jesus Christ, to the glory of God the Father. Everything is. And it comes as a weak little child, given to weak, frail parents. There is glory in that. There is glory in a God who works in that way who doesn't work by simply coming to earth in a sign of strength and in power and might and saying, all will bow to this one that I will bring forward. He doesn't send his angels to Herod, but he sends them to shepherds. Dirty, dirty folk. Looked down upon by everyone. And yet that is whom he calls. That's whom he shows the glory of this child to. He doesn't take it to the great people of Israel. He takes it to foreigners. There is glory in that because God knows what will happen here. He knows that his providence will watch over this child. He knows that the entire future of the world, the very existence of the universe hangs on this child, this child with tears and snot, this child that will get sick in his life, this child who will be tempted in ways that you or I will never be tempted, this child who didn't win sort of a strength contest as he got older. He, God didn't take 18 people, line them up and say, okay, who really wants to be Christ? Who is most able to be Christ? 
He didn't have a choice. He came. He was given over to it. It was his destiny to do it, and he carries it well. Think of a God who works like that and be overwhelmed by the glory of the ungloriful nature of that. It is exactly the opposite of what you or I would ever do. And it is precisely for that reason exactly what our God would do. He doesn't use the strong and the mighty. He doesn't use the perfect. Our God uses those who are outside. He uses the least. He uses the weak. He uses the sinful. He uses all of them to bring about what is perfect and glorious and good because that is how awesome our God is. That is what we should be preparing ourselves for on Sunday because on Sunday, that is the day that we celebrate our God clothing himself in the minutest flesh and coming to this earth to save sinners from himself. Let us give thanks to God and let us pray. Father, you are good to us and you are kind to us and you have given us your son. Above all things, you have sent the second person of the Trinity, the Son, who is God of true God. Everything that is true, Father, about you, everything that is true in your power and your might, everything that is true about you being creator, everything that is true about your knowledge of all things, everything that can be said that is true about you can be said as true about the Son. And yet, he gave up all of that not only to follow your will, but because he loved us. While keeping those things, he still clothed himself in humility, in in human flesh. And not only that, he clothed himself in human flesh, knowing full well where that flesh would end up. Knowing that he was doomed and destined for the cross. Father, while he didn't hang his hat on being divine, He trusted, Father, in you in all things. Your plan of salvation is odd. It is weird. It does not rest on the things that we would like it to rest upon. It does not work in the way that we would think it would work. It does not use the people we think it would use. But, Father, we are grateful that it doesn't. For we would never be part of it if it did. So we ask that you will continue to impress upon us your glory and the oddity of this genealogy. That we might be, Father, encouraged to work all the harder for you knowing the type of people that you use and knowing that you have called us to this task and equipped us for it. We ask for this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.